When trying to reason with faithful believers, especially religious extremists like creationists, we keep hearing the same old arguments over and over and over again, even though we know they've already been shown to be false, fraudulent, and or fallacious probably by everyone who's ever seen them. If you keep it up, you'll suspect that those who keep repeating these must surely know by now that all of these points have already been refuted a thousand times. I'm R.N. Ra, and this is The Pratt List. Some religious propagandists like to pretend that they are just and good and righteous and that anyone who believes differently is somehow inherently evil, especially if we don't have any faith-based beliefs at all. As if none of us have ever done anything good, which of course means that they have to ignore all the good that so many of us actually do, and instead exaggerate the bad as much as possible, even if they have to lie to do that. Here in America, that sort of propaganda most often comes from Christians, and Protestants in particular. These people feel empowered by a sense of persecution, as somehow having their beliefs questioned, criticized, or ridiculed doesn't inspire them to reevaluate their position as it logically should. Instead, they're determined to double down so that an already unreasonable belief becomes an incurable delusion, which they'll actually brag about having such strong faith. The more severe the persecution, the more justified they think their belief is. So they want to feel persecuted. It's like a badge of honor for professional victims. Christians claim to be the most persecuted people in America even though they're still the dominant demographic and always have been, which they think makes the U.S. a Christian country. It almost is, now that they own and control everything at every level of state and federal government and literally lay down the law. They're so persecuted, aren't they? We atheists are outnumbered, outfinanced, and certainly outgunned, but we're committed to defending the First Amendment against their constant attacks because we've had a lot of history to show us what they'll do to us and everyone else once they get that out of the way. The Founding Fathers knew that too. That's why the First Amendment is there. But these religious extremists tend to have an altered and enhanced view of history. It is propaganda, after all. For example, modern Protestants distance themselves from Crusaders, Inquisitors, and Conquistadors by blaming all that on Catholics, as if Catholics are godless, merry-worshipping pagans who really aren't Christian. First of all, according to the Encyclopedia Britannica, there are over a billion Roman Catholics, more than twice as many as all Protestant and Orthodox denominations combined. The inclusion of Catholics is the reason why Christianity is still the world's leading religion. But if Catholics are not Christian, then Christianity loses its privileged position and Islam becomes the dominant religion. That's going to happen eventually anyway, and the sooner you all realize that and work with me to defend and promote secular policies before that happens, the better off we'll all be. Those who dismiss Catholics also tend to reject Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, Orthodox, and several other denominations too. You include Anglicans, but that's about it, in which case Christianity is only the fourth largest religion. After Islam, then Catholicism, awkward, and even behind Hinduism. Did you know there were more Hindus than there are Baptists, Calvinists, Methodists, Lutherans, and all that put together? Islam is the fastest growing religion, and Muslims already have y'all outnumbered almost four to one. How do you feel about your Catholic allies now? The same people who dismiss Catholics as not true Christians also blame atheists for a long list of atrocities against Christians, even when those Christians were Catholics, and their oppressors were not entirely or not necessarily atheists. So they're fudging the numbers on both sides here. That's what makes these claims propaganda, that they are both biased and deliberately misleading. For example, the reign of terror during the French Revolution was aimed at Catholics specifically, 
not the Protestant Huguenots or Lutherans or even the Jews who were also there. It was aimed against Catholicism because revolutionaries saw the Catholic Church as their oppressors, which of course they were and had been for centuries. And while there were some atheists in the French Revolution, most, including Napoleon, were deist. Now let's not forget that after deposing theocratic rule of the Catholic Church, the state then mandated a belief in the deistic version of the supreme being. That's still God, so you can't call them atheists. Likewise, Christians blame atheists for murdering tens of thousands of religious believers in the Paris Commune of 1871, but that's not what happened either. Again, Catholic clergy gave authority to the monarchy and therefore had to be deposed along with them. But this was an entirely political conflict in which religious believers were never targeted, nor atheists implicated as the aggressors. At least some of those rebels were Christian, and fewer than a thousand people were reportedly killed in total. Then, when the Bolsheviks took over the Russian Empire, their Red Army was pitted against the White Army, being a collection of Tsarists, Republican liberals, there's a concept, and Russian Orthodox which American Protestants only consider Christian when it's convenient for their persecution complex. The Bolsheviks did kill a bunch of Orthodox along with many other people, and they did this with the assistance of Muslim mercenaries. Again, not in the name of atheism, obviously, but because the church supported their enemies in the white movement. If you're opposed to the Tsar, who is backed by the Russian Orthodox Church, then the church was your enemy too. The new Russian state did seek to eliminate religion after that, and they thought they could do this by removing the fear on which faith is apparently based. But at that time, the majority of Soviet citizens were still openly religious. Even after the communists established state atheism, most organized religions were never outlawed and people were still allowed to carry religious and anti-religious materials. Even Stalin, who was raised religious himself, allowed the Russian Orthodox Church to resume at least some of its former position in the community. And I'm not defending Stalin by any means. He was a vicious idiot who rejected Darwinian selection in favor of Lamarckian Lysenkoism, and he was a monster responsible for a whole lot of inhuman atrocities, some against Christians for various reasons, but also against lots of other people too, behavior that sane people consider unconscionable. Pol Pot was another rocket surgeon who had people murdered because they wore glasses, because he thought that only smart people wear them. So he thought anyone with glasses was smarter than him, which you know they probably were, and he thought that made them dangerous, so he had them all killed. The man was a homicidal moron reacting out of fear. Atheism is a smart position to take for many reasons, but being atheist doesn't make you smart. That's why I personally advocate rational education and scientific skepticism and promote humanist values. Just because you're atheist doesn't mean you're rational or skeptical or educated. Your mere lack of belief in gods doesn't automatically make you a humanist, I'm sorry to say. Just like it doesn't make you communist either. Likewise, just because you're Christian doesn't necessarily mean you're a willfully ignorant, racist, end times dominionist, young earth creationist, or a paranoid pistol-packing pedophile. You could be a Christian and a communist at the same time. Many people historically have been and still are. But the propagandists among you have assumed that if I'm atheist, that means I'm socialist, which it doesn't, and they don't know the difference between socialist and communist because those descriptions are complicated and the people I'm talking about aren't. They're definitely prone to false dichotomies and one-dimensional lines of thought without any consideration of nuance. But because the only government to ever promote state atheism was communist, then regardless of the circumstances in each particular case, any violent conflict between communists and almost anyone else is misrepresented as an attack on Christians by atheists, regardless whether those communists were exclusively or even predominantly atheists. Since none of this was actually done in the name of atheism, there's no way to know. And whether any of them were actually atheists is largely irrelevant. 
And it's not just communists who are categorized this way either. Socialists are conflated with communists too, and thus labeled atheists, even if they're practicing Christians. Jesus himself was a socialist. That don't make him atheist, or violent either. It was never about atheists hunting Christians because they are Christians. That's just a persecution fantasy. While atrocious horrors are often committed in the name of God and religion, and violent mobs have reacted to that, especially when imposed by the ruling class, no such riots were ever committed in the name of what they don't believe. Religion is not the only ideology one can believe in that can incite violence. Authoritarianism has particular appeal to the worst people ever, regardless whether they believe in a god or not, especially when that becomes totalitarianism. I was always told not to talk about religion or politics in order that I obviously didn't obey. Because of that, I've discovered that the only thing less rational than religion is politics. And I've seen that atheists would sooner form alliances with politically compatible believers than tolerate political differences among fellow infidels. You can still believe in political ideologies and act horribly in their behalf, regardless whether you also believe in religion. So communists were rarely, if ever, exclusively atheists, and atheists are rarely communists. My wife's family, for example, fled Vietnam when the communists took their land and imprisoned her grandfather, among many other horror stories she tells. And consequently, she's an atheist with no love of communism at all. And most of the Christian claims we hear about atheist regimes are hogwash, and much of what we hear about Christianized history is whitewash. Let's not forget St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre, where Catholics slaughtered tens of thousands of French Calvinists in 1572 in the name of God. Then remember the heavy persecution that began again with the Edict of Fontainebleau by Louis XIV in 1685. That's why Louis XVI signed the Edict of Tolerance a hundred years later, allowing non-Catholics to practice religion freely at last. Remember, Henry VIII initiated anti-Catholic hostility that led to Anglican and eventually German Protestants persecuting or killing Catholics, and we've had wars of Catholics against Orthodox, to say nothing of Puritans torturing Quakers in the American colonies, all in the name of God, which it has to be when it's one religion versus another. Which God? Well, whether you call him Abba, Allah, or Hashem, they're all the father God of Abraham, you know, Jesus' alleged dad. So they're all fighting over different interpretations of the same God, and they're killing each other in the name of that God. All three major Abrahamic religions claim to be all about peace and love, yet they've all been at war with each other continuously since their inception, while also being at war with the Hindus who are at war with the Sikhs and the Buddhists. Then, of course, there's the genocide of tens of millions of Native Americans, which was begun by Catholic conquistadors, but continued by Protestant Christians like Andrew Jackson our first Trinitarian Christian president. Remember that prior to Columbus's famous discovery, Pope Nicholas directed Spain's King Alfonso to capture, vanquish, and subdue the Saracens, pagans, and other enemies of Christ, to put them into perpetual slavery, and to take all their possessions and property. This Christian doctrine of discovery was adopted into U.S. law by 1823. Our history records that indigenous Americans were described as pagan savages who must be killed in the name of civilization and Christianity. Thus, thousands, if not millions, of Native Americans were killed deliberately in the name of God, where no one I know of was ever killed in the name of atheism. Remember, despite what religious propagandists say now, the Nazis were Christians too, whether Catholic or Lutheran. And they said their concentration camps were based on the reservations we created to detain tribal natives. 
Hitler said his hatred of the Jews was based on religious beliefs rather than racial knowledge, and the Kristallnacht was inspired by the published anti-Semitism of Martin Luther, founder of Protestant Christianity. So don't pretend that Protestant Christians are better than anyone else, or that Christians in general are better than everyone else either. Of course, all through history, atheists have been, and in some countries still are, arrested, tortured, and killed simply for not believing in whatever religion is favored by the local authorities, because irrational beliefs can only be promoted with an irrational defense. So what have we learned about predominantly atheist or secular governments beyond 20th century communism? In a previous video of this series, I've already explained how religious believers are statistically far more prone to violent criminality and acts of immorality than atheists are. But I should also add that the most atheist countries today are also the greenest and most technologically advanced. With the single exception of communist China, they are also the most tolerant societies and popularly considered to be the nicest places to live, with the best systems of education and health care, as well as the best economies and ecologies with the lowest crime rate and the worst criminals being devout believers. Pretty much exactly the opposite of what biased, dishonest, right-wing, religious extremist propagandists want you to think. When trying to reason with biblical literalists, they'll say that their Bible is historically accurate, even though the best they can show is that only some of the people and places mentioned in those fables were real. Which, of course, they would be, since fictional stories are usually set in real places and often mention famous people of that time. But there is absolutely no historical or archaeological evidence that the stories are true. And biblical scholars often admit that they're evidently not true. Believers might also argue that the Bible is scientifically accurate, even though the earth is not flat. There is no firmament. The sun is just another star. Snakes and donkeys can't talk. Whales are not fish, and bats are neither birds nor locusts. Ritual spells won't purify anything, much less cure anything, because diseases are caused by pathogens rather than demons or curses. And looking at a striped stick will not cause a cow to conceive a striped calf. There was never a global flood either, nor could there have been. Everything the Bible says about any field of science is laughably and indefensibly wrong. Now, failing both past and present, defenders of the faith typically turn to the future, citing prophecies in the Bible which believers imagine to have been fulfilled, because religion is all about make-believe, and the Bible says that interpreting prophecy is one way to convince yourself if you really just have to swallow all this supernatural mumbo-jumbo some way. It's not just Christians who do this. Hindu scripture shows that one way to fulfill prophecy is to amend the text to insert a prophecy after it has already been fulfilled. In similar fashion, the authors of Jesus' early biography in the Gospels have him traveling around as a baby, apparently to artificially contrive fulfillment of a handful of different prophecies, that he would be a Nazarene, but at the same time also from Bethlehem, and yet still somehow come out of Egypt, even though that last prophecy was obviously talking about the people of Israel, personified as a person, in a tale that was supposed to be from centuries earlier. Likewise, Isaiah 53 is again talking about Israel personified and not Jesus. And Christians interpret this chapter as the Jews explaining why they rejected Jesus centuries before they ever heard of him and how they would eventually atone for their current faith by coming to believe in Christ at some point in their future. Seriously? But of course, Isaiah was not talking about why he didn't contradict himself and other Hebrew prophets. From the mainstream Jewish perspective, Jesus doesn't qualify as Messiah because he failed to do any of the things the Messiah was prophesied to do. So he didn't fulfill Old Testament prophecies at all. Isaiah 52 clarifies that 53 is talking about Israel, not Jesus. 
52 was hopeful for Israel, and 53 described their eventual redemption, though obviously not through Christ. And while 53 has a few notable parallels with the Jesus story, that doesn't matter. It'd be like saying that the original story of Sargon's childhood prophesied that of Moses being so similar, or that the story of Moses' childhood prophesied Jesus for the same reason. The similarities don't make a prophecy. There are also important distinctions, like Jesus was never crushed, and he never shut up kings because he was never recognized by kings, and he never had any descendants. The word seed is consistently used in the Bible to describe offspring rather than unrelated followers of a precedent. So when Isaiah mentions seed, it refers to the Jewish children of Israel, not Jesus' followers. And Jesus was never a mere servant of God like Israel was, so he was never beaten and afflicted by God like Israel was. His life wasn't prolonged either, obviously, nor did he share spoils with his peers because he didn't have peers, and he wasn't a conqueror with spoils to share, like Israel was. So this chapter is not talking about Jesus. Most of it is in past tense, so it can't be a prophecy of any kind, which is why none of it is messianic according to Jewish sources. Isaiah never mentions resurrection either, which would have been the whole point of the story if it was about Jesus. So this chapter is obviously about Israel, just like it says, and can't really secretly be a prophecy about Christ. Isaiah 9 isn't a prophecy either. It's a 7th century coronation hymn in which any new king would bring hope for better or more peaceful times, and any king of Jerusalem would be the might of God, as it is sometimes translated, or his messenger, as it is in the Septuagint. It doesn't refer to Jesus because Jesus is not the everlasting father. Now, some believers argue that Jesus could be considered the father of eternity, but that's a stretch. Referring to a king as everlasting is really no different than saying, long live the king after you've learned that the king is already dead. This is just a traditional reference of reverence recognizing royalty. And many of the prophecies that Christians point out as being fulfilled by Jesus or that were supposed to have predicted Jesus are either Jewish prophecies, talk about someone or something else, or they aren't written as prophecies at all like pretending that King David was writing about Jesus rather than himself. And David wasn't even a prophet, and his psalms are not considered prophetic within the Jewish religion. David is talking about being encircled by his enemies, hunting him with dogs, biting at his hands and feet. And that may work from David's perspective, at least metaphorically, as he seems to imply it here. But it doesn't work in any sense at all for Jesus, now does it? Christians imagine this passage to be about crucifixion, this misinterpretation is based largely on a mistranslation, which has resulted in a few other misinterpreted prophecies too. For example, Isaiah 7.14 talked about a young maiden who was unmarried and not necessarily virgin. The Gospel of Matthew claims Jesus to be a fulfillment of this prophecy, which it can't possibly be. Isaiah did prophesy but about an entirely different situation with no possible connection to Jesus regarding an unremarkable kid who lived and died centuries before Jesus. So not only does this new interpretation of this prophecy fail, but the original version failed too, spectacularly, every way that it could fail. Isaiah had written in a time limit. Every good prophecy should have that, but very few of them do, because that's how we know when they failed, once they've passed their expiration date. For example, the Mormons brag that their prophet, Joseph Smith, accurately predicted where and why the Civil War would begin, because he was right about that. Which is weird, because he spoke in plain language, not in any convoluted code like so many prophecies are interpreted to be. But the Mormons don't mention that the very next passage after that predicted that Jesus would return in the year 1891. Awkward. Though his second coming seems to be contingent on Smith living that long, which shows you how close he was to God. If my prophet isn't there, I'm not going. 
And Jesus himself said that some, but not all, of his disciples would still be alive to see him return to earth in the clouds at the right hand of power. But every one of his disciples are dead now, and our boy is at least 1950 years late. So I think it's safe to say we've been stood up. He ain't coming. For a prophecy to have any value at all, it should state clearly and unambiguously what's going to happen, to whom, where, and when, and not in symbolic lingo that has to be decoded. It should be something that wouldn't have happened eventually anyway, but if it is, then it should definitely have a time limit. Without that, you can't claim success either, because anything that can happen will happen if given enough time. Just look at Jesus' prophecy for the end times. For many will come in my name, saying, I am Christ, who will mislead many. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And in various places there will be famines and earthquakes. And people hear this and think, wow, that's how it is now. Well, of course it is. That's how it's always been. Every year for the last couple millennia, at least, has met every one of those criteria. There were a couple other prophecies that were plainly stated and included an expiration date, and both of them failed too. For example, Ezekiel prophesied that Nebuchadnezzar II, king of Babylon, would conquer the city of Tyre and destroy it utterly, breaking down all the walls, streets, and towers, and killing or driving away everyone therein. Then God was supposed to step in and cause the city to sink beneath the deep and be lost forever. It would never be found again because it would be unrecognizable, just an uninhabitable rock in the midst of the waters, no more than a place for fishermen to spread their nets. But none of that ever happened. Nebuchadnezzar never took the island city. Someone else did a century or so later, but not the guy who was prophesied to do it. And the city was quickly rebuilt when it wasn't supposed to be, and people still live there when it was supposed to be abandoned because the island never sank. Every part of this prophecy failed, and Ezekiel even admitted that in another of his prophecies, which also failed. And this time he said that the land of Egypt would become a desolate wasteland where neither man nor beast would ever set foot for at least 40 years. Again, this was supposed to have been at the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, but it never happened at all, neither then nor at any other time. Even when it is this obvious, believers will never admit that none of these prophecies were fulfilled as described, and the excuses they use to rationalize this can be desperate indeed. And these include the nebulous use of prophetic language, where the same story can be read both literally and figuratively at the same time, as if a Jewish prophecy can be applicable to the Jews who composed and recounted, but that the entire text of the same story can be equally true as an entirely different prophecy for Christians. Any excuse will do, as long as they never have to admit that they're wrong. And prophecies particularly appeal to the paranoid, and are especially popular with conspiracy theorists, seeking patterns that are not apparent to any rational person. Believers determine their interpretations by arbitrarily shifting from literal to metaphorical and back with no rhyme or reason or discernible distinctions, reading between the lines, and then ignoring the lines, such that one verse is taken to refer to a whole other topic than the rest of the chapter just because it sounds similar to something else, as if every author of the Bible had attention deficit disorder. What the scripture actually says is seldom what it means to whoever believes in it. When it says this, it really means that connecting the dots between discordant verses and unrelated books by different authors talking about disparate things that are not all connected, but where devotees believe that every seemingly random coincidence is somehow intentionally orchestrated and all the evidence of reality is dismissed as only an illusion. This is why prophecies shouldn't be written as vaguely as a fortune cookie or an astrology chart, because then it's like reading the quatrains of Nostradamus. 
It's hard to disprove any of his predictions. But when it's that malleable, you can take almost any current event and link it to something he said or that the Bible said as if Nostradamus or the Bible predicted it. For example, the 60s psycho killer Charlie Manson thought that the Beatles were the four locusts with the hair of women that are mentioned in Revelations 9. He thought this because of the song Revolution Number no. 9, which is on their unlabeled white album, which Manson took as a personal message to stage a white revolution called Helter Skelter after another song on that album. He thought they were talking to him because another song on that album was Sexy Sadie, and his main squeeze at that time was Sadie Mae Glutz. That, and because his name was Manson, which of course means son of man, which meant that he must be our savior. He thought that the Beatles were sending him secret messages in their lyrics, as if they couldn't communicate with him directly in plain English. He lived with the Beach Boys at that time. It would have been easy for the Beatles to reach him. But he had the sort of mind that looks instead for coded messages in every song and subtly symbolic meanings for every image, because everything happens for a reason, and nothing is as it seems. Christians prefer to adapt Jewish prophecies for their own purposes. For example, all four Gospels point to Zechariah 9.9 as referring to Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. However, again, this is a Jewish scripture, and the rabbinical interpretation is that the Philistines were supposed to be converted and the land of Israel enlarged by this prophesied king, but that didn't happen with Jesus. The story says he was rejected by rabbinical assembly, where fulfillment of this prophecy would have required Jesus to have been accepted. There are also prophecies referenced in the New Testament that don't appear in the Old. And no one knows what they are because there are books referenced in the scriptures that don't exist anymore at all. How did the prophets not foresee that? And why did no one predict the age of automotive automation? All these ancient seers could foresee current events thousands of years into their future, but none of them noticed airplanes? And what's the point of a prophecy anyway? If God or his prophets really could see into the future, that means that the future is fixed, just like the past. He knows what we're going to do, and we can't change it. That means we have no free will. Ironically, about the only clear and unambiguous prophecy that actually did come true was Ezekiel's prediction that Jerusalem would be restored, which is not surprising. Anyone suffering a defeat like that is likely to say that this isn't over and we'll be back once we rise again. And what makes this prophecy interesting is that Isaiah made the same prediction, but he added that the nation would be born all at once in one day. And that certainly sounds like May 14, 1948, when the nation of Israel was founded. But there are a handful of problems even with that. One is that there isn't a time limit or even a frame of reference to allow an event 2,500 years into his future. Especially not if it mentions the establishment of Israel, but fails to mention the Holocaust that preceded that. That would be kind of a big deal for Jewish people. But then, anything happening more than a hundred generations in the future is probably beyond anyone's cultural interest. There are a number of Christians who dispute this prophecy also, saying that Ezekiel referred only to when the Jews would return to Palestine in the 5th century BCE, when the temple was rebuilt. Isaiah prophesied that the nation would be founded not by men, but by God. And the problem with that is that God is not recognized as the founder. He's not mentioned anywhere in the proclamation of statehood. Instead, modern Israel is a secular state, citing the natural and historic right of Jewish people. So God didn't get the credit that the prophecy said he would. And another problem with this is that it's also a Muslim prophecy cited as proving the Quran. And this was a thousand years after Ezekiel or Isaiah, but well more than a thousand years before the fact. The Quran has a lot of fulfilled prophecies, enough to warrant another video just to address them apart from the Bible. The Quran even predicted Trump. So 
are all you Christians going to turn Muslim now? Because if Quranic prophecy doesn't matter to you at all, then imagine how little your misinterpretation of Jewish folklore means to me. I asked Christians to give me their favorite examples of fulfilled prophecy, and the ones I just talked about were the best y'all could do? Nothing that was unambiguous, meaningful, or in any way helpful or compelling, nor that even met the minimum criteria required to be fulfilled. Christians brag that Jesus fulfilled hundreds of prophecies in the Old Testament, but if they're all as contrived as these, then it's no wonder the Jews are still Jewish. It's a wonder any of you still believes in God at all. Believers often ask me, if evolution is true, then why do we even care about morals, laws, or each other? And there are at least two problems with this. One is it depends on the false dichotomy fallacy, that we either have to accept the sacred scriptures as completely and literally true, or we have to reject God in order to accept science. That's the very first foundational falsehood of creationism, and I'll do another video about that for the Pratt List series real soon. The other problem is the embedded question of where atheists get their morals from, as if believers have an objective moral standard and unbelievers don't. There's a lot wrong with that, too, especially when they clarify that their morality depends on fear of punishment. And many Christians have told me that if it weren't for belief in their God, they'd run amok, raping and killing and vandalizing everything, because why not? Well, if that's the way you feel, then why didn't famous atheists like Carl Sagan or Christopher Hitchens act like that? Even Jack Nicholson and Bruce Lee didn't act like that. And maybe they could have gotten away with it. This leads me to think that if you think that some omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent punisher is the only thing stopping you from being the most immoral monster you can be, then you're an immoral monster already. But we know even that's not true, because we've seen numerous people who've given their lives to God in one form or another, becoming ministers and missionaries and so on. Yet after many years of that, some of them have realized they can no longer believe the nonsense they're selling from the pulpit. So they join a support group of hundreds of others like them called the Clergy Project. And what they've shown again and again is that losing their religious beliefs actually made them more tolerant, more compassionate and curious. So losing your fear of God can actually make you more moral and even less violent. But if you're still a God-fearing person, say a Christian, for example, and you think your God is going to punish you for doing evil, no, your Bible says otherwise. It says it doesn't matter how evil you are. All sins will be forgiven if you but believe. But if you don't believe, then it doesn't matter how good you are. Because the only sin that will not be forgiven is the sin of disbelief. All your good works are like filthy rags. You are saved by faith, and that means believing impossible absurdities for no good reason. Thus, gullibility is the sole criteria for redemption. Morality isn't even a factor in your judgment, because you're not really going to be judged, of course. And seriously, how immoral is it that a God would punish people not for what they do, but for what they believe? Your God has questionable judgment. If God were real, he wouldn't care if you believed in him, and it'd be his fault if you didn't. So you're not going to go to hell if you don't. It's the people who want to impose and reinforce their delusion and then use that to control you, who promise a posthumous paradise they'll never have to produce, and who threaten you with a fate worse than death if you're not credulous enough to swallow that first lie. In reality, the only thing in the universe that needs or wants your faith is a bad liar. Real things neither desire nor require faith and continue to exist regardless without it. And defenders of the faith 
really want to pretend that they have an objective moral standard. They want to believe their morals were decreed by God. But even if they imagine their God to be the ultimate authority, what is or isn't moral comes down to his opinion and his alone, which makes it a subjective standard. Objective means that it's not influenced by personal feelings or opinions. So if you want to make sure you're right about something, you wouldn't ask yourself, of course. Nor should you ask the God who lives inside you, who hates everything you do for the same reasons that you do, and who, who can never explain anything to you that you didn't already know about or understand. Your personal God is limited to your knowledge and opinions because He is you. That's why other people's personal relationship with your God gives them different answers than your God gives you. Praying to your God is just going to get another subjective answer because it's coming from the same person, you. And that answer is entirely dependent on your personal feelings about it. So you should ask other people for their opinions because they might be informed opinions. And even if they're not, they're still not based on your own perspective personally. They are a different person and that counts for objective verification. Hey, does anybody else see the ghost of Colonel Sanders in here? No? Just me? Okay. Better yet, you should look at what the data actually shows, regardless how you or anyone else may feel about that. That would be objective too. Now, how do we know what is moral or immoral? For whatever reason, most religions seem to have a severe issue with anything having to do with sex, and sometimes just pleasure of any kind. But they keep making excuses to justify animal cruelty, war, torture and capital punishment, rape, murder, genocide, slavery, misogyny, child abuse, and molestation. And most of us realize that these are immoral, regardless of religious excuses. It doesn't matter if we're talking about Judeo-Christian, Muslim, or Hindu scriptures either. They all do that. So we probably don't want to trust the clergy or the sacred ravings on matters of real consequence in people's lives. If we can't decide objectively what is moral and what isn't, then we can't even make sense of this topic because it's literally meaningless. How can we pretend to have an objective standard if we can't even come up with an objective definition that we can verify to be correct? because that which is consistent with the ways of God obviously doesn't cut it, regardless which holy book you're reading. There is a descriptive moral relativism between individuals because people are different. The same goes for religion, who often contradict each other, even though most of them claim to be the divinely inspired word of what is in essence the same God. So if any of them were right, there couldn't be this disparity. But despite that, there's also a general trend or tendency among groups of people, not just one society, but all of them collectively, regardless of their cultural religion, that uninvited lies and violence are always immoral and should only be employed in desperate moments of self-defense, but that sex, music, and other forms of enjoyment are not always necessarily immoral, no matter how good or bad they make you feel. So morality then, is determined by what Christians would call the golden rule and witches would call the reed, which is to say, as Scott Clifton so cleverly put it, a particular action or choice is moral or right if it somehow promotes happiness, well-being, or health, or if it somehow minimizes unnecessary harm or suffering or both. A particular action or choice is immoral or wrong if it somehow diminishes happiness, well-being, or health, or if it somehow causes unnecessary harm or suffering or both. Now that we know what morality is, we finally have a standard by which we can measure our gods, doctrines, and religious leaders to see if they're moral, and 
they're usually not. But why does that matter if there's no afterlife where we're trapped with an inescapable, indomitable, telekinetic telepath who will judge and punish us when we eventually, inevitably think of something we weren't allowed to think? That's just a matter of time, and we have all time. If only heaven didn't last forever and ever and ever. Why would atheists have morality? For the preservation of the one life we really do have and for the perpetuation of the community on which our lives depend. We evolved as social animals. Any animal raised in dependence by its mother is more capable of feeling compassion for another. And population mechanics of social animals provides powerful selective pressure toward altruism. This was explained in Dawkins' The Selfish Gene, which I'll tell you is a deceptive title. There are deviations from that, of course, because mutations occur randomly. Some folks have underdeveloped prefrontal lobes or inoperative mirror neurons, or their religious upbringing may have instilled a lot of unnecessary bigotry and hatred. Killing the infidel, on the word of one or two witnesses, is a strong selective pressure too, and that's how religion got to be so big. But people still awaken from that mindset, and they can recover from it. In the early history of our genus, we had already lost the extra muscle and huge teeth of chimpanzees and gorillas before we grew our enormous brains and achieved our state-of-the-art intellect. So there was a time when we were dumb and weak individually. But our inherent compassion for family, friends, and fellows prompted us to band together and unite for the common good, to have every one of us save any one of us who got into trouble. That was the key to our success. Then we got big brains. This is the foundation of humanity. This is where everyone gets their morals from, including those who want to pretend that they're holier than thou because their morals were imposed from on high. But their obvious and often criminal hypocrisy shows that no, their morality doesn't come from any benevolent deity. Certainly not an infallible one. This is what happens when you pretend to be something you're not. Our moral standard is inherent in our nature. We all behave as we do, good or bad, because we're just a bunch of arrogant fucking monkeys trying to get by the best we can, and the best way is to help each other do and be better.